Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi there. I want to talk to you about ducks. No thanks. All right. Now that's a good idea. Okay, let's go. Give me that dirty. Oh, it's a dirty. What? Oh, you're thinking about a plate of shrimp. Suddenly somebody will say like plate or shrimp or plate of shrimp out of the blue. No explanation. No point. No point. It's all part of cosmic unconsciousness. of the cinematic radar. Just a reminder that the Cult Film Companion podcast is now available on every major podcast platform. We invite you to join our Facebook page, our Facebook group, the Cult Film Companion, and to follow us on Twitter at Cult Film Comp or on Instagram, also Cult Film Comp, C-U-L-T-F-I-L-M-C-O-M-P, or feel free to email us with your suggestions for movies at Podcast at gmail.com. And just a quick reminder that we are also a featured podcast on Newsly. Newsly is an audio app for iOS and Android. It picks up the web articles about the most trending topics on the web at any given moment and then reads them to you in a natural human voice. For the first time in the history of the internet, the entire web becomes listenable. Browse from articles and topics that you choose and start playing. Stop scrolling, start listening. You can follow any topic as specific as you would like from sports to science to Bitcoin the Kardashians, and it will find the latest articles and then read them to you. Plus, they have podcasts as well. Explore trending podcasts from over 50 different countries. Our podcast, The Cult Film Companion, is, of course, there's a featured podcast. Download and use Newsly for free now from www.newsly.me or from the link in the description. And please use the promo code CULTF1LM. Cult Film, drop the I, pop in a one, and get a month free premium subscription and without further ado here we go with the umbrellas of Cherbourg. hello and welcome back to the cult film companion podcast my name is chris i'm your host joined as ever with my co-host andrew good after uh, good afternoon good morning it's, what kind of work it's technically afternoon good Hi. afternoon sir and um uh i'm gonna ask you to introduce our very special guest for this movie, we are, of course, talking about Jacques Demy's The Umbrellas of Cherbourg from 1964, starring Catherine Deneuve. And this is a bona fide cult musical classic that, if you haven't seen after our conversation today, I cannot recommend this movie enough. Do not be put off by the fact that it is a musical. And do not be put off by the fact that it is in French. It is an just an absolute... It's something that you kind of just need to see to, to believe. It's a very operatic movie. And when I say operatic, I mean that everything is sung. 
our entire plot, all the dialogue, everything is set forth uh, through song, through singing. Um, but it is just a marvel for the eyes and, and a treat for the ears. So, Andrew, please introduce your friend, um, Eric. Yes, to my, my longtime friend, Eric. Um, we've known each other from college days, so we've known each other for a very long time. Eric, it is a pleasure to have you on. Say, say hello. Hello, thank you so much for letting me join you. I'm very excited to talk about one of my all-time favorite movies. Right on. Excellent, Eric. Thank you so much um, for joining us to um, add some insight to this because I've, I've only seen this movie once, and it sounds to me that you guys, are great, your numbers of, of viewings have greatly um, yep. Yep. Um, yep. eclipsed mine, greatly <laughs> eclipsed mine. So I'm going to actually pose a question to each of you. I'm going to ask Andrew first, and then I'm going to go to Eric. Andrew, what was your introduction to this movie? My intro- It was always on my radar because my grandmother, my mother's mother, had the LPs, of uh, the double LP set for it. So I, I did listen to it, I think, um, at my grandmother's on my grandmother's old stereo system and i'd never seen the movie until uh high school when i saw on in the tv guide this is back in the 80s uh that it was going to be playing on an afternoon so i set the vcr to tape it and it taped it and eventually i watched it and it was it was extremely fuzzy i remember as if there were there was vaseline on the lens and it was dubbed in English. Ugh. Yeah, I know Eric will have a lot to say about this, um, but that was my introduction to it. Eric, go ahead. My introduction was a complete accident. I I go to the library and I browse through their collection. I discovered it in the library stacks, and I knew who Catherine Deneuve was, and it looked interesting. I it was an absolute lucky chance of fate. I had no idea what I I was going to discover. I guess this is a plug for the public library system. I, <laughs> no, I had that's... no idea what it was going to be all about, and I agree with you. It's more opera, in my opinion, than musical because the entire thing is sung. And the, if if I may interject, um, the emotions, the the emotional element of the movie does lean towards the operatic because the love story is a tragic one. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So let's um let's get into before we start dissecting some of the um the the um the motifs. Let's briefly just kind of sum up the plot here. We've got um almost star-crossed lovers. Yep. It, it, uh, in a way, it's kind of like a French Romeo and Juliet. Not so much that we've got from opposing families, but we've got the upper middle class umbrella shop that's kind of living. Be I would say above their means. Because they are in, in in trouble, yeah. And the beautiful Catherine Deneuve, who, um, it's amazing to me going back to watch something like this because my introduction to her was in The Hunger, from the early '80s. So like 15 yes. years later, right? At least. Uh, and then um, I do have a question. You brought up the English dub. Did she do her own English dub? No, they none of them did their own singing. Uh, they were they were basically lip-syncing to other uh, singers for the whole thing. And I think Michelle Legrand's, who did the music and the and the lyrics, I think some of his relatives actually are on the soundtrack singing. I think, oh. I think one of them did the voice of the mother. I'm not quite sure. Eric, do you know about this? I don't. I didn't realize that they weren't singing themselves. 
It's not them. Yeah, I, and this was something I had a question uh, for for a long time, and it, they don't do their own singing. So continuing on with the plot, then. So uh, take, what, why don't you take it from here? So so Catherine Deneuve um, and her mother uh, work at the umbrella shop, and the other character Guy, who or Guy, uh, who is played by. His name is where? Here it is. Nino Castelnuovo. Castelnuovo. Am I pronouncing that right, Eric? I'd say Castelnuovo. Yeah. Castelnuovo. Yeah. He he recently passed away, by the way. Um, oh. And and we didn't mention on At Long Last Love for the listener who has listened to the At Long Last Love episode. Peter Bogdanovich also passed away recently. So. Um, a lot, you know. Rest in peace to both of those that's two. That's right. That's um, right. That's right. Catherine true, Deneuve true, true. is still alive and with us. Yeah, we will know when she passes away. Definitely. Yeah, I was surprised at the whole the, the Bogdanovich thing kind of passed me by. It was a shock to you too, because I just told you prior before I recording. No I had no idea either. I had no idea. Uh, we it wasn't well publicized. Uh, it wasn't well pub. Yeah, that's what Chris says. Um, okay, so getting back to the plot. Yes. <laughs> um, so, so Nino plays Guy, who is a mechanic that works at the car shop, and lives with his with his. It's not his mother, but it's his aunt. But another matriarch. He calls her aunt. She's his godmother. I don't know if they're actually family or not. He calls her Aunt Elise. Okay, that's right. That's right. She is his godmother. But still, we're dealing with. Um, I mean, we'll get into it. But we're dealing with a lot of matriarchy with both of the. Uh, both of these characters, yeah, it's um, it's very much. You said star-crossed lovers, Chris. It's very much um, a first love as well. Yes, we all remember right. our first love, and usually, yes, it, it, yeah, and usually it does not end in marriage; it ends in heartbreak. And so this movie is all about that. Yes, uh, I wanna I wanna try to pronounce the the name of the movie in French real quick. It's called Les Parapluies, Parapluies de Cherbourg. So that is the French title, um, and it's known across the world probably under the French title. And Can I make a point before we move on? Absolutely. Talking about the title, I want to point out that parapluie is a much more beautiful and elegant word than umbrella, and I think umbrella is a very imperfect translation because parapluie literally means for the rain. Pluie means rain. And I think that's a very important and evocative word to include in the title for example if i suggested a title the rain in savannah for the rain of san francisco it suggests a mood a tone there's foreshadowing and i think that's lost in the english translation uh, uh, so let's get one right of the many things lost in the english translation let's let's get uh right into it uh guy goes uh, is um Drafted, pretty much. He's got he, he, at this time. I'm, I'm actually not sure what the the military they service. Were at war with Algeria, right? Yeah, the French Algeria Algerian War. Yeah. Right. So he's got to go. He's got to go off to war. Um. Uh. The the night before, pretty much the night before that he leaves, they end up sleeping together, which I would I. From what I'm guessing is probably their first time yeah. sleeping together. Yeah, it's a very yes. innocent first love. Mm. Uh huh. Um. And and they it, kiss. They really, really kiss for the first time before they go up the stairs to his place. I remember. I do want to bring this up because I had a problem with the chemistry between Burt Reynolds and Sybil Shepherd. The chemistry, last love, right? Uh, I, the chemistry between Catherine Deneuve and Guy 
like yeah. you you believe oh, that it's these absolutely you it's like palpable. and you, you have to because otherwise you're not going to be able to you're not going to be emotionally invested in no. their story because they don't actually have that much time together they before. don't and pretty much all the time that they have together um they're sing, singing about how much they are in love with each other so if the chemistry weren't there it would become uh it would become redundant you it, know? It, but, yes um, instead it becomes more and more you get more and more uh in, entrenched in their romance so we've got uh we've got guy has to go off to war uh Catherine Deneuve find out that she's pregnant there's a very wealthy uh Jules dealer who's very interested in her and he's helping out the family but his uh ulterior motives for uh helping out the family financially seems to be wanting to marry Catherine Deneuve uh which is very innocent compared to uh, uh, movies now where uh, the ulterior motive would be simply to sleep with her uh <laughs> you know this is a much more innocent Kind of, I mean, it's a genuine kind of like I, I've instantly fell, fallen in love with her. I want to be with her for the rest of my life, kind yep. of thing. Very He's very smitten with her in a very gentle and innocent way, and he even makes the point of saying that he's shy and he's awkward and he doesn't know how to communicate well with women. Right. Um, yeah. Actually, the the marriage proposal, I believe, goes through her mother and yes. is not actually directly to her right like an arranged marriage right um guy goes off to war um comes back and um she's gone she's gone the uh, shop is gone the, the 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 mother uh the godmother who has been sick throughout the entire movie lives long <clears throat> excuse me lives long enough to see guy come back from war though yeah and she finally says you know that now that you're back i'm able to, to to die, which yeah. is, it's very sweet in a way. And the nurse that's been taking care of the godmother, who I could already tell had a thing for Guy yeah, from the very, from right away. And the and, way she looks at him. Well, that's the thing. That's that. That's the kind of acting that I, I think that we don't get as much anymore, that they're so good at conveying feelings just with facial expressions. Mm-hmm. Just communicating through their eyes. That's real acting. Yeah. Yes. Um, um, I mean, there, there, there are examples today of, of actors that are able to convey through their eyes, through facial expressions. Um, but uh, I, I think it's kind of a so loss. opera stars are good at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, they have to be, don't they? Yes. Yes. <laughs> they, they learn. They go. The they go through boot camp to be. Well, not only boot camp, they but they're banging out five episodes a week. That's so, what I'm saying. Yeah. That's yeah. what I'm saying. So um, we've got these lovers, and the um, guy and the 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 nurse um, eventually end up getting married. They have their own son. They have um, they open up a me- their own gas station mechanic shop. And the ending of the movie, I think, is 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 a beautiful scene, just a beautiful set piece at their gas at, at the gas station. Pretty much at the gas pumps, they do go inside, but they they see each other. Catherine Deneuve comes back. Her her name in the movie is Genevieve. Am I right, Eric? Yes, I would just call her Genevieve if I was going to speak in English. Okay, okay. so Genevieve does come back, and she their daughter is Francois. Uh, Francois. Francoise, and the son is the son that is the masculine that guy of in the Madeline. Name. Yeah, that guy in Madeline have had is called <laughs> Francois. Right, right. So 
I, and this brings me back to, to something that um, Eric brought up a very uh, a very good um, the the French translation uh, let's we're gonna get a little technical here for the listeners um, I'm not very familiar with French I did ha- I did take several years of it back in grammar school so my memory's not all that clear as much as I love this movie my biggest criticism, is not the fault of the film. My biggest criticism is the fault of the English subtitles, which um, I don't think does justice to the lyrical quality of of the French. Of the French language. Yeah, it's uh, it, it seems simplistic and it lacks the poetry that is inherent in the French uh, in the French lyrics of the song sometimes you miss a lot of the rhymes actually that that we should have been hearing and understanding personally i don't think it's right to blame the subtitles i think we could blame the entire american educational system we should all be fluent in french (laughs) you know what that that's a very good point um and we could you know we could blame the the education system because apparently my french teacher wasn't all that good or i was goofing off because I don't remember all that much French but I do remember that French is a very it's also even spoken it's a very lyrical language it's beautiful it's absolutely beautiful I'd and expressive and descriptive in a different way right speaks from the heart a lot it, it kind of demands that you speak with eloquence and with um, with a sense of self with a, with a sense of romance to tell you the truth yeah so I, I mean, that was my my big criticism. I think I mentioned to you, Andrew, when we were saying. I think I said that they were blunt. The, yeah. The, the 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 subtitles were blunt. I mean, just the <laughs> in French to say "je t'aime," which would translate, I think, in the subtitles to "I love you." There are so many ways to say "I love you" in French. You can say "je t'aime," which actually is the informal way of saying "I like you." Um, there's je t'adore, which is the inform- informal way of saying I adore you or I love you. Um, and I'm sure there are other ways to say it, that they say it. But I, it's just already you've got those two differences with the I love yous. Right. And also, you just got to think about in the English language, different ways that we have different inflections in our voice, the way we talk. We can say when someone's coming across very sarcastic. We can feel the genuine emotion. Plus, we have words in the English language that are just confusing to a foreigner. And the, the biggest, easiest one that I can I can convey to someone is I th- I say think of the word W I N D wind. Uh-huh. Also, wind. Wind. Sure. Right. So I mean, that's kind of the, that's the whole that's one of the tricks of language just in general is that we have, I mean, not being a native of 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 France not being able to really um, get all the like you said I'm missing out on the rhymes I could I noticed uh, the subtitles like the words weren't exactly matching up because of the French sometimes the way that we would have the words um, in a in a sentence as if you were to read them would not be the way that they were spoken um, by a a, a a native French speaker. Um, Eric, anything that you'd like to, like any specifics that you could think, think about? I think the subtitles are just barely enough to get through the storyline and follow the plot, frankly. And I don't think he was making this movie for an American audience. No. It probably was the furthest thing from his mind. Mm-hmm. He was probably making the movie with a French audience in mind. 
I, I found myself, there were times there are when... Sorry, there no, are cultural ahead. references that I think we as an American audience wouldn't understand. Cherbourg is, is relevant. It's a rainy city. It's a cloudy city. It's in the north of the country. And I think that most French audiences would recognize that if you're going to set a, a sad, rainy movie in a part of the country, that would be a suitable city. Okay. So I think those things are lost on us. Would it be comparable to like when we kind of think of our stereotypical Seattle movie, yeah. a very dark, very rainy kind of... Like yes, exactly. Okay, great. Um, Eric, I was just going to ask you, if there are there any particular line, well, uh, lyrics or lines in the movie that you think were um, just conveyed so much better in the in, in the native tongue than the well, I don't speak for I don't speak French. Okay. <laughs> it took me several viewings to be able to stop having to read the subtitles and be able to actually listen to how beautiful the singing voices are. Right. I could never even appreciate the music because I was so busy following along by reading the subtitles. They're very distracting and they take a lot away from the movie. Yeah. But but Unfortunately, we speak English. Right. That 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 is the quote. That is the quote of the podcast. Unfortunately, we speak English. I love it. I love it. Now, if I actually may, I interrupt this for a second. Sure. Can you do a sound check just real quick to make sure Eric is coming through okay? I'm sorry, but I just wanted to establish it. Oh no, I've been I've been keeping my eyes on the levels. You have. Yes. Okay, great. You'll edit this part out then. Maybe, <laughs> but no. The sound levels are the sound levels I've been checking are are great. Okay, terrific. Uh, I had six years of French growing up in Maine uh, and being by Canada, being by Quebec. So for six years I had French. Unfortunately, I can't speak it to save my life. I think that would change if I was plopped into a French city or land or town or culture. I'd be able to pick it back up again. But there were moments during this past viewing where I didn't look at the subtitles and I did just pay attention to the movie, to the visuals, to the story, to the music itself. And uh, it's much more engaging, of course, to be able to do it that way. Can I say something, Andrew, for a second? Yeah. I, I don't want anybody to think that this movie is, is not spectacular. I didn't know French at all. The very first time I watched this movie, I was blown out of my seat. Reading the subtitles the even? Yes, reading the subtitles and not understanding almost any of what they were saying, I thought it was magnificent. It's a visual spectacle, and the story is so iconic that it, it transcends language, which is yes. part of why this movie is a classic. It's Shakespearean to the core, and I don't think that should be missed, and I don't think that should be overlooked. No, I, I was actually going to say, um, I, I prefaced my whole little thing with saying that my only criticism with this movie was the subtitles. Eric, you bring up a great point. I, my recommendation for people coming into this movie is that, obviously, if you speak French, forget the subtitles. Just enjoy this movie. It's it's absolutely, it's visual, like Eric said, it's visually beautiful and the story is i don't want to say i say simple as a, as a compliment to the fact that there is enough conveyed through the acting and the movements of the people of uh, the facial expression the physical acting that you can follow this you could follow this story even without the subtitles my recommendation for people would be to if you um uh, first of all pick up the criterion edition it's beautiful the transfer was crystal clear. The sound is amazing. Um, 
watch the movie for the first time with the subtitles, kind of get your your feet under you, then watch the movie without the subtitles. Like Eric said, um, just let the just let the music kind of speak to you and let the visuals speak to you and that you could follow this story. I, I think that that would probably be the best way of conveying it. And yes, I, I do not want it to be um, understated how visually, I mean, let's, let's get into the visuals of this movie because um, I, I was mentioning to both of you, um, there's a, there was an interesting interview that I watched with a, a pretty famous uh, American comedian named Patton Oswalt, who said that, He's surprised that more, uh, and he was saying it sarcastically, but that more hipster coffee shops and bars aren't just showing this movie in the background on a huge projection screen without any music in the background. Um, <laughs> like a wallpaper movie. It's just like visually, let's get into the visuals, starting with the, I, I just love the opening shot of this movie. The overhead shot of the street with the rain coming down mm-hmm. and the various people, it's Mm-hmm. It's the kind of, it's just a genius shot, though, mm-hmm. a beautiful way to open up the movie. But as we go through the movie, we see um, bright colors everywhere. Um, it, it, and you know that they repainted a lot of these exteriors and interiors, too, you know, the sets that are inside the, the shop and inside people's homes. Uh, everything is done in either bright primary colors or soft pastels. Uh, it's gorgeous to look at. It reminds me of, uh, once again, Douglas Sirk. We brought up Douglas Sirk with um, Female Trouble and that John Waters was a fan of his work. Douglas Sirk did a lot of really uh, lush Technicolor movies like uh, Imitation of Life. I think Ross Hunter was the art director of that. But anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. Uh, the, it also reminds me of Pedro Almodovar movies. I know that when I see a Pedro Almodovar movie, I'm going to be seeing a lot of very bright colors, almost like you're going to a Broadway show, actually, you know, something to that effect. I know that Umbrellas of Cherbourg has been adapted to the stage twice, at least, once in the 70s and once only a few years ago. So, and, it's, and, and it's perfect material. I can just see these exteriors being done as sets moving around on a stage. Uh... With that being said, Eric, what do you think of the the visuals of this film? Of course, they're eye-popping and beautiful bright colors. My friend particularly loved the fact that the outfits frequently match the wallpaper. Yes, Yes, I noticed that as well. (laughs) In in my most recent viewing, I noticed also how sparse and spartan and simple most of the shots are in the sets. And it reminded me almost of a comic strip, like an old-fashioned comic strip, like Little Orphan Annie, how in every shot it's so very tight and simple. And I think almost like West Side Story. So there's a a comic aspect to a lot of the interior shots, not the exterior shots, the interior shots. You were mentioning a a moment where the mother, it's a quick cut to the mother, and it's it's a straight-on angle on her face, and she's upset about something and singing about it and you could almost yeah. imagine a bubble you know a comic strip <laughs> bubble you know oh right. no she, she, we're going to lose the place the room. she walks in and she screams we're ruined yes yes and you can almost imagine the this the bubble popping out of her mouth and in, and in some of the scenes where they go from uh, of different locations you i can almost imagine that in the corner it says meanwhile or later <laughs> oh i love yes, it yes. i didn't even think about that but you're so right it really i mean it, it, it's just 
I, I kind of see it just as the European kind of style of cinema. I mean, well, uh, I mean something. It, this is this is a good moment to actually talk about the French New Wave and how this movie is actually a part of the French New sure, Wave. Sure, please. Let me just read a little bit off Wikipedia real quick. Um, so forgive the you know the the reading off Wikipedia, but I'm going to do it. Cheater. Yeah, I know. <laughs> French New Wave is a French art film movement that emerged in the late 50s. The movement was characterized by its rejection of traditional filmmaking conventions in favor of experimentation and a spirit of iconoclasm. New Wave filmmakers explored new approaches to editing, visual style, and narrative, as well as engagement with the social and political upheavals of the era, often making use of irony and exploring existential themes. The New Wave is often considered one of the most influential movements in the history of cinema. So, okay. So it, it bears, uh, you know, it needs to be noted that Umbrellas of Cherbourg is probably, I think, the only movie musical that was done in this movement, in the French New Wave. Um, <clears throat> now, as we're, as we're talking about this, um, it's also interesting to note that Umbrellas of Cherbourg has been an inspiration for many movie musicals since, especially recently. I know the director of La La Land has cited Umbrellas of Cherbourg as a major inspiration. I tend to think of Moulin Rouge as more of a, a better example of how Umbrellas of Cherbourg has inspired a film. And Moulin Rouge, just like Umbrellas of Cherbourg, is part of a trilogy. So that's also interesting to note. The, the Baz Luhrmann trilogy is called the Red Curtain trilogy, of which uh, Strictly Ballroom, Romeo plus Juliet, and Moulin Rouge are a part of. Uh, the trilogy that Jacques Demy did with Umbrellas of Cherbourg started out with Lola, and then Umbrellas of Cherbourg, and then the sequel to Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which is The Sisters of Rochefort, which actually is also a musical, and may I may have to correct myself, may also be another movie musical that fits into the new wave movement. Uh, Eric, I know you can do a spin on this with Lola and how it relates to Umbrellas of Cherbourg. So I'm going to give you the uh, give you the floor for this. I did I did see Lola, and it's very different. He hasn't really perfected his style. There's singing and there's music, but it isn't a musical or an opera all the way through the way this is. It doesn't have the eye-popping color the way this does. It does introduce the character of Roland Cassard, who's our jewel dealer, and he leaves, at the end of that movie, he leaves heartbroken. So in, in Umbrellas of Cherbourg, we're reintroduced to the character, and I think that Jacques Demy wanted to give that character a happy ending, and so at least this heartbroken character is able to find love mm. in, in Umbrellas of Cherbourg. But you can see the style evolving from, from Lola to this movie. And this movie is far and away outpaces, and he does so many things that he, I guess he hadn't thought to experiment with. He's really pushed his creative imagination to the limits and in Lola he's just sort of dabbling he's just sort of trying a few things out he, he, he didn't do any of the spectacular things that he does in Umbrellas in Lola it's always it's, well real quick it's all it's all it's interesting because uh the, uh there's the flashback scene. There's the flashback scene when he's giving his monologue, his sung monologue about the girl that he loved, and I guess that's Lola, and they show a flashback, uh, a right. camera, yeah, a camera shot going around a mezzanine in a in a mall, I believe, and it's shopping and, area. That's one small shot from the movie, yeah. And okay. it looks like it looks like it. It looks like it's from a whole different world, a whole different movie. Yeah. 
it's it's always interesting to me to to kind of revisit and what I love on the shows going back to um, uh, the early works of directors that we kind of come to know for certain movies. So if we know some, you know, for fans of the Umbrellas of Sherberg, um, to go back to see the the kind of the foundation being laid in something like Lola. It's something that we've discovered here on the show, like, uh, for instance, when we were discussing Duel, the first Steven Spielberg movie, we could see the foundation of what Spielberg could eventually do. So I always think it's interesting, and I'm so glad that Eric's here to to, um, to give us that insight into something like Lola. Um, Eric, have you seen The uh, the Sisters of... Rossifer? I haven't, I haven't found it. I haven't had the opportunity to watch it. Okay. okay. I, I, wa- I need to... I need to note that I saw both of those movies, Umbrellas of Schoberg and Sisters of Rocheford, when they were re-released into cinemas. They were cleaned up and uh, re-released in, back in the 90s. So I had the pleasure of seeing both of those movies in a theater. It was exciting. Now, could you see the the kind of like the transformation of the filmmaker happen between those two movies? Or were they... Yeah, there is, there is a maturity, actually, in Sisters of Rocheford that... Um, that that is different, I'm going to say, than Umbrellas of Schoberg. Uh, but Umbrellas of Schoberg is the centerpiece. It really is the template. It's the classic. It's the little gem that you will find, like Eric did in, you know, in uh, in a public library. Right. <laughs> Another shout out to the, our public libraries. Keep them, yeah. keep them going. They're yeah. they're a treasure trove of treasures for those that seek them out. Um, yeah. Eric, um, what are, what are some of your Favorite either uh, songs or just like little scenes in this movie that are, are were like like highlights for you, kind of like like after repeat viewings, like you're anticipating seeing once again. Uh, well, of course, the heartbreak scene. Of course, the scene where they get the news that he has to go to war, and they start singing about how they're going to survive without one another, and and, and they end up drifting up to his bedroom is heartbreaking every time I watch it and I I cry almost every single time even though I've seen the movie several times over because it's so spectacular and beautiful and moving and emotional and the scene where she says goodbye to him at the train station is legendary Mm. and again if if you're not bawling your eyes out you have a heart of stone (laughs) oh oh dear I cry (laughs) you have a heart of stone Chris oh dear Um, I, I do I do cry every time I see this movie I've been experiencing heartache lately and I was, I was concerned about how much you're, I was... You were prepared. I brought a box of Kleenex. Yes. I actually didn't have to use it. I was able to keep it together. But there were moments, especially at the train station and especially at the end, where I internally was, was heaving. You know, I, I, it was difficult for me to keep... You know, that kind of... <laughs> that you have, you right. know, when you're about to just, like, let it all you know, gush out of you. Uh, I was able to keep it together, but it does get me. It gets me every time I see this movie. The ending gets me. The train station scene gets me. The well, music... and the ending is also one of the best parts of the movie. So, so important to the movie overall. Yeah. And powerful. Yes. I, I, I was going to say, my, that the whole, the whole final act at the, at the gas station, the whole thing just from the Christmas tree to the little boy banging on the drum. Right. I, that whole, the whole ending to me was my absolute favorite part of the movie because it wraps up everything in such a beautiful, simplistic, yet 
I mean, utterly heartbreaking. Heartbreaking yet realistic way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, which is part of once again the French New Wave. I mean, they fi- they find a way. Excuse me, they find a way to ground this ethereal piece of work in reality. Right, because the whole—I mean—the whole basis of a musical or an opera—I mean, you're already like a hyper reality. Exactly, because mm-hmm. people aren't going walking down the street, going to Seven Eleven, singing. I wish they would. Well, I wish they would. Sometimes <laughs> I do. But back in my, younger, in my younger days, I did. Well, I wanted the world to be a musical. That's true, but some of the songs they're singing—you know—we're getting a lot. Well, we 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 we're living in a rough section, so we're getting a lot of uh, <laughs> ghetto hip hop being blasted. Um, so we're not getting like the beautiful. We, we're we're not getting beautiful French new wave music. Um, but I mean, the whole, like you said, it's a heightened sense of reality. But the ending to me was so realistic. Like you could feel the emotion and I could sense the like what really got me the realism was just a very simple line when they're inside the gas station. They're reunited and she asks Guy, would you like to meet your daughter, our daughter? Yeah. And he says no. Right. And that for me was like, that's that's a real answer. I think that. Yeah. I mean, if we were given a typical Hollywood ending, it would have been a, oh my god, yes, like I need to meet my daughter. This was like real. This was like no, it would be heartbreaking for me, and it would be a mind warp yeah. for this young girl. Yeah. Right. Right. And so right. like I just, just that little that little thing was just like that's like that. Beautiful. Loved it. Another another thing is that when the camera is pulling back after Catherine Deneuve drives away, um, we see Guy and uh, Madeline and their and their children, his their, their, their son. son coming back home and he's very happy to see them yes. and they run around playing and they're the happy. Snow. So the character, the two lead characters are not crying when they're having this reunion and having to break, uh, split up for the rest of their lives for good this time. It's the viewer who's going to be crying. I'm going to start crying just talking about okay. this. Um, yeah, it's the viewer that has to start crying. I mean, we're they're, they're past it. They've gotten past it, but because we're watching them in a movie where there are time lapses, right, we're not right. past it. We're not over it. I, we're, we, we have to experience it for the first time. And again, that's, that's again speaking to the realism. Like yes. you said, they're, they're past it, yeah. but we as the viewer, what they've lived for years with yeah. and, and have gotten to adjust to and eventually move on from, we, don't we, we just experienced 30 minutes ago, so yeah. we're like, this is awful. This is absolutely but awful. Again, I love, <laughs> I love the the realism of that, and I, I and like you said, that speaks to me of that innocent first love. Yeah, and like the awkwardness of like re- see if you ever see each other, like yeah, in situations years. Oh yeah, I mean, I was talking about this with a, with someone just last night. Yeah, when you um, have to see someone that you really were in love with long ago, maybe for the first time. What's that going to be like? But you have had time to pull it together. Right. You know, and as difficult as it might be, you find, you know, now there's been enough time where you can be cordial to one another and have it just be that. Can I interject something here for a second, guys? (laughs) Yes, please. When when I see the final scene of the movie, for, for just to say, to start, my heart is in my throat the entire time. Yeah. Butterfly, yeah. Because this movie, although we think initially that this movie is a love story, in fact, this movie is about life. 
Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's about and it's about how difficult life is, and it's about moving through life with grace and having to get over the hardships in life. I I I love the final scene of this movie because it does something unexpected. Yep. I think mm. if we were going to see a Hollywood ending, they would somehow connect and realize that they were meant to be together and run off together. Yes. And that's not what happens. No. This movie reminds me of a movie that I, I another movie that I loved and watched a few years ago, Midnight Cowboy, because the entire time you're watching that movie and this movie, you think you're watching a particular story. You think it's a success story in Midnight Cowboy and that the cowboy is going to make it big in New York. You think you're watching a love story in this movie and that somehow they're going to reconnect and it will be all right in the end. And then in the final moments of the movie, you realize that's never what you were watching. You were watching a, a, a movie about life. And life is difficult and disappointing, and that's the lesson that we're meant to take away. When I watched this movie with my friend, and the ending happened, she looked at me and she said, "That's it, it's over." And then she said, "And then she said, oh, of course it's French." Oh, see, I, I don't think that's necessary. That cracks me up. <laughs> that reminds me of going back to one of our first episodes. Let's scare Jessica to death. When the ending comes you didn't realize what kind of a movie you were watching the entire time. Right. And that in that movie is it's basically a flashback too. Right. And so you you're back to that opening sequence and you you're fully informed now. But I lo- like like Eric so uh artfully put I mean something like Midnight Cowboy something like um Umbrellas I mean you kind of it, it makes you and 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 that adds to Rewatch value in a yeah, movie. It does. Certain yeah. movies, you get to the end, everything's wrapped up all nice and neat in a little bow, and you're like, "Well, I guess that's great." Uh, I have no reason to ever go back and rewatch this movie, though. Something like this, I kind of want to go back and rewatch to see what the seeds, what kind of right. seeds were planted, and all the yeah. layers that are built up. Right. Another movie I just want to mention, um, real quick, is Days of Wine and Roses with Jack Lemmon and uh, Lee Remick. I've only seen it once, and it was on my black and white TV when I was a teenager. But that has a similar gut wrenching ending, and just like like I cry, just you know, I start to cry or choke up whenever whenever I even think about it. But that kind of, two alcoholics who cannot be together cannot be together, and at the end they're saying goodbye to each other because they simply have to. One of them has uh, has gone into recovery, and the other one is still an alcoholic, and they cannot be together. And it's gut wrenching. It's just so hard to accept uh, this type of cruel fate between these two characters. Now, Same thing with Umbrellas. Now, another thing that um, we haven't even discussed all that much in a musical or an opera, can we talk about how amazing the music is? Absolutely. And how very, like, what I loved is that you kind of get the big sweeping strings on occasion for some of the songs, but then some of them, like I was telling you, like I would point out particular like jazzy grooves that yes. are going on. Yes. And I like that's again, this is a movie that you could watch without the sound and enjoy the visuals. This is also something I could totally see why you would pick up the LPs. Yep. Start spinning them and be like, Wow. Yep. Like So let's let's let let me riff on this for a second. Sure. Um the main the main love theme song in English translation is called I Will Wait For You. 
It was recorded by Tony Bennett in English and was a big hit, a standard. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, uh, but along those lines, also let me just talk about Michel Legrand. His name is Michel Jean Legrand. He did the songs for this. Uh, I'm going to read from Wikipedia again, just forgive me. Oh, my God. Well, just let, you know, (laughs) this is for the listener. Okay, okay, okay. A French musical composer, arranger, conductor, and jazz pianist. Uh, Legrand was a prolific composer, having written over 200 film and television scores in addition to many songs. His scores include uh, the films of the French New Wave director Jack Jack Demi, the the films that we're talking about, and um, he won an Academy, he had his first Academy Award nomination. Oh, he won an Oscar for The Windmills of Your Mind from the Thomas Crown Affair. Which is a great track, a great song. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so some beautiful stuff. He has also, uh, I know that he has performed with a lot of jazz greats like Stan Getz and, and other names of such. So he has roots in 50s uh, jazz. Right. That, that whole scene. Now, I also have to say for the listener that I, I, I might be a little biased because I was sharing with Andrew after we watched this movie. I'm a huge fan of... Uh, the French musician Serge Gainsbourg. Oh, right. Huge fan. I think he is just an absolutely brilliant musician. And I actually played, I think I played for you the music video for Bonnie and Clyde. Yes. Um, With so, Serge Bardot. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I am just a huge fan of his. So I've already gotten, I, I like for me, it wasn't like a culture shock that I could see some people saying with some of the music in this movie. For me, I just like, it was just like, because I was familiar with the kind of music that he did because he crossed so many different genres of music from rock to jazz to pop. Uh, I mean, his he's got decades of work, so I've listened to, like, so many different eras of Gainsbourg that, I, I mean, that I've got... I've already got an inkling of some of what the French music sounds like. So I could see to certain people, it'd be, be like, wow, that's kind of an interesting, like, off-kilter kind of groove. But yeah. That was the kind of music that the French musicians were yeah. producing at the time, right? Which is derived from freestyle jazz, mm-hmm. where the where the where the percussion can sometimes go against the beat. Yes, you know. I, yeah, I was taught. I I dated someone who was a jazz musician who taught me all of that. So it's like, wow, you know, once you can wrap your head around that, that the beat is actually off working against the rhythm of the song. There are so many different ways that a, 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 a gifted composer can make something like that work. Yeah. In your, yeah. Your, and I think for you in particular, I, this is just a little off-topic tangent that, that we do on the show. I, for the, the track Bonnie and Clyde that I played for you, uh, people check out Bonnie and Clyde by Serge Gainsbourg if you haven't. It's very much just an acoustic guitar duet but there's this weird vocal sample playing in the background. It's, it's mostly spoken. It's like beatnik. Right. Yeah, it is very, yeah. very bop, like almost like yeah. a Bob Dylan kind of song. But it's a duet between the two of them. But there's the oh, right. vocal sample yeah, yeah, yeah. that's going on in the background that is yeah. just so bizarre. Yeah, but yeah. it works in the song. Yeah. And um, uh, Eric, please, can you talk well, wait to a minute. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. So, okay. so let me let me go back to the main theme. The main. Uh, romantic theme the love theme of umbrellas of Schoberg. it is used it is used very i don't want to use the word manipulatively but it is done very cleverly and very strategically um in its reprises and sometimes they will sing the verses to that and then you expect them to get to the chorus and they don't they go into another conversational uh tune or melody 
So it's it's used very effectively, and then of course at the very end we hear it only orche- orchestrally, right? You know, and that's that's the, you know, but full orchestra, and that's the big emotional payoff right there. But I mean that I mean. Music manipulation in movies is nothing new. I mean, no, I think it's not. And I mean, most... even even Les Miserables is like pieces of a of a jigsaw puzzle with its melodies and its songs. But I'm just thinking the most the, the easiest example that immediately springs to mind is that James Bond theme. That dun 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 dun. dun oh, right, that, sure. Like when the action starts amp- amping up in yeah. a James Bond movie, you're you just like, theme. yeah, you're just like, okay, yeah. I get it. So I think that I think that they use that main theme though. It's used very well because it it helps you harken back when the story's progressing. It helps you harken back because to... because you were there when they were really singing it to each other for the first time, right? You know, and then and so yeah, when you hear a, and that's the whole point of a reprise in a musical, you're going back to that moment that you experienced fully with these characters. So, um, so but Eric, I would like Eric, our guest, to please uh, uh, the floor is yours to discuss some of the amazing music. Yes, the music in this movie. Well, obviously they're placing the music very carefully and very deliberately. And let's not miss the fact that every scene and every character has their own theme. Yeah. yeah. And when when a new character comes on screen, they have their unique musical signature behind them. Roland Cassard's theme song is taken from Lola. Really? That song, that melody is actually in Lola, huh? Yeah. So oh, you, wow. It, it's, there's actually... Continuity in that regard. Wow. Okay. And, and and notice that every time, for example, we go to the garage, there's a jazzy theme that pops right in. So he's moving us from scene to scene with the music. Yeah. Right. In addition to providing a backdrop to every character. Yep. Yep. It's it's funny that this didn't start out as a concept album like the Android Weber musicals, um, because it could be done as a concept album before being filmed. But it's kind of a, a better gift and a better package to have it all come out at the same time. Yeah. So you have the music, you have the soundtrack, and you've got the visuals, and you've got the acting, and the French New Wave direction going on as well. I mean, th- this movie is, even though it's a very simple and small little gem of a flick, it's a buffet. I mean, it's really a banquet of for, for the senses. And Andrew, don't, don't, don't misunderstand the fact that it's not an accident. It's it's deliberate. That it's, it's all by so, design. So, yeah. Yep. It's intentionally sparse. It's intentionally pared down. Yeah. He's intentionally chosen to remove the excess, and that's what makes it so tight. There is something I, very stripped down about it, isn't there? I want to talk about the pacing, which yep. I think is, is very important and very relevant. And after watching it several times, you'll notice that they pop from scene to scene so swiftly and so magnificently and so beautifully. It's like the whole time you're on a, a rapid jog, like you're out <laughs> jogging with your dog. And every every step of the movie is boom, 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 boom. Yep. It never drags. There's not a no. moment where it drags. And it's it's... It's not an accident. It's deliberate. It's beautiful. It pulls the movie forward in a way that, again, if you're not a French speaker, you never get bored, which is unusual. We're describing it as being operatic, and I think it's Shakespearean, but it's never slow. Yeah. No. Yeah. And I and I love this scene where they they bef- when they have the big kiss before they go upstairs to his apartment. Um, they're are there are a series of camera angles and camera shots that 
tell a little story in and of itself where you see them kissing. I think you see the, the back alley empty and then you see the stairs, something to that effect. And that's all you need to see. You know what's going on. They've gone upstairs to sleep together for the first time. Yeah, we don't need it to be explicit. Uh, I also think that it's very interesting, though, and I, uh, obviously I'm not a product of the 50s, so I can't really speak too much on it, but I think that for a movie that is seemingly very innocent, there's also the the storyline of the unwed mother, you know, with the father off to war. I mean, I mean, I guess that we would use the phrase bastard. Uh, Child. Bastard. Oh, okay. So I think that it's very... Mature. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's it's very mature f- for audacious for a musical in the fifties. Yeah. Well, the, the, we're now in the sixties, so it's not for, the fifties, but it's set in the fifties. I mean, think about that seriously. It's like right. Pey- it's like Peyton Place. You're pregnant. What are we gonna do? And the mother even the, says, "What are the neighbors? What are our friends gonna say?" It, and I love her response to, "We don't talk to the neighbors, and we don't have any friends." <laughs> I love that. But I mean, I mean, it Sorry. is a. It's a very mature story plot. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up about Genevieve or or, uh, Genevieve, um, because in a lot of ways, to me, she is the voice of reason in this movie, even more so than her mother tries to be. Her mother has an agenda. Uh, and she, oh, yeah. yeah, and we'll talk about the mom in a minute. But but Catherine Deneuve's character is really very much, and this is this is something she's carried into her uh, acting throughout her career. There is a voice of reason that lies beneath what she does, and I love that, and I think it grounds the movie. And that it's coming from her, the blonde ingenue, is actually the voice of reason in this movie. Well, can I just interject quickly? Yes, of course. You asked me earlier one of my favorite scenes and one of my favorite lines. One of my favorite lines in the movie is actually a moment where after he has left and she is pregnant, she turns to her mother and she says, Genevieve, in the shop, she says, I was supposed to have died without him. Why aren't I dead? Oh, that's a very oh, poignant moment. Yeah. I remember that. That's yeah. I mean, shows great wisdom. Yes, for a young girl, absolutely. And like you said, she is the voice of reason. I mean, like I said earlier, we were talking. They're living above their means, and that's got to be the mom's fault because she's running the shop, right? So she's the one that's spending above, you know, what what they're bringing in. She's not the best businesswoman, so she's kind of she's trying to manipulate her daughter, but her daughter's not having any of it. And I think that she finally, I mean, why do you think that she finally gives in to Mary, I'm sorry, the character's name. Um, Roland Cassard. Yes. Why do you think that she finally just, like, she's she's gotten to that point where she just says, okay. Eric, you should answer that. Go ahead. On the one hand, she's definitely succumbing to pressure from her mother. Her mother's very manipulative. I don't think we should underestimate the pressure that she's constantly putting on her daughter. Mm. Very effectively. We're ruined. We're going to lose our home. We're going to lose the shop. We're out of money. So I think that's certainly one aspect of it. But I think also Genevieve starts to realize that maybe her fond recollections are are childish. Mm that she in fact can live without him she says another important line in the movie she says i can't remember what he looks like anymore i have to look at photographs wow, right and that's a very re- revealing moment yep yeah he's fading away from her as time and it's only been a few months or a year 
but he's receding into the past very rapidly. And I guess she's a pragmatist at the end of the day. She has a very kind, very wealthy man who's smitten with her and is willing to take her child as his own. Right. And she doesn't know what her feelings are for Guy anymore. As he's retreating in, 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 in her memory into the past, she's faced with a real practical problem right here and right now of not having a future, not having any money. And, and she's going to be a single unwed mother, as you point out, in the 1950s, 60s. What kind of future would she have? How right. many men would accept her? That's I mean, true. I mean, yeah. You, That's absolutely the, true. Yeah. This is a good point to bring up um, the mother. Uh, when when Genevieve starts to become pragmatic and start uh, thinking about, about her future, and she starts... Um, it's, it's around the same time that Roland does propose marriage to Gene, Genevieve, to Gen, Genevieve, through her mother, and it's when her mother actually sees... This is, this is my interpretation, at least. When her mother actually sees that it's going to happen between the two of them, that they are going to get married, she, I see for the first time, conflict in the mother. Because I think that deep down, she does, as every mother does want for her daughter, she wants her daughter to be happy, and she's seriously starting to question how happy her daughter is going to be in the future. And I see that conflict basically as soon as as soon as uh, it's established that the two are going to get married, she's just like, oh, have I done the right thing? Have I done the right thing for my daughter? And I felt that. So I think this is a good good part of the episode as we start a- a- entering our third act of the episode to talk about the matriarchy yeah. here. Um, I mean, it's, it's female dominant. Yes. We've got Guy, Guy, and we have Roland. That's basically it. The rest are women. Right. Yeah. So some of the um the the themes here to explore with the matriarchy um kind of thing. I mean, it is a very it's a it's, very female dominated movie, and it's cultural. You know, we all know that Europeans tend to be more family centric than Americans. Yes, uh, and this was the '60s. I think everyone was more family centric in the '60s. Sure, right. Yes. Early sixties for sure. Yes. So. Can you riff on the matriarchal or the female aspect of this at all, Eric? Well, I I, I was thinking of Lola, and Lola's a intentionally very strong, outspoken woman, very interesting and unusual character who sings very proudly. I'm Lola, and that's her that's her trademark song. And I'm thinking of of Jacques Demy. I'm thinking that this is what he wanted to communicate, that he's in love with these types of characters. Mm-hmm. That's well, interesting. They, uh, that does speak to him being a very, you know, a, a proto-feminist, I guess. Yeah. Um, very interesting, well, and, very interesting. And it reminds me of Nine, which is a musical uh, adaptation of uh, Fellini's Eight and a Half. Uh, the movie version of Nine is not very good, but the original stage production of Nine is excellent. And it's all about how he was raised by by women and how his life has been uh, surrounded by women throughout his whole adulthood as well. So his entire life. So there is something to be said about men with women around them. There's um, there's a higher sensitivity level maybe with, with men who, who experience that. I don't know. I'm kind of like 
throwing. Well, he he's got a respect for women all along. The women all have agency. You yes. could you could argue that Genevieve is some sort of a victim, but you never feel like she's a victim. You always feel like, on some level, she's managing to steer her ship, even though it's through difficulty. She's she's managing to stay in control, and at the end, you certainly don't feel like she's been victimized. No, no, I never. I, you know, it's interesting you say that because you know I'm reflecting the movie. I never saw because she's she has such a strong personality throughout the movie yep. that I never I never saw her as a victim. And the fact that she doesn't immediately go for Roland immediately because he's rich and wealthy and he's going to take care. He she takes her time to actually process this proposal and process like you said she's like this movie's about life she's got she's thinking not only is this concerning me now this is my unborn child yeah this is going to, like you said i'm going to be an unwed mother whose father may or may be you know, like i don't even know where he is at this right. point he might be dead he but, might not make it out of the war exactly so i mean that that there's so much and there's no money there's no money in the shop no yeah what is she going to do these are real. These are real problems. Yeah, they these are. are real She's thinking issues. of her own survival. Yeah, right. Which yeah. again just speaks to how, like, while you know, you immediately say that a, a musical or an opera is a heightened sense of reality. This movie is so grounded yeah. because it's dealing with real people with real issues. Yeah, I don't know if the term kitchen sink drama applies to this. I think that's a that's a term that's used sometimes, but I don't know if I'm using it appropriately. I think that's kind of a der- I always have Is a it? negative connotation when I hear kitchen sink. It sounds drama. kind of It does. It to me I I think it's almost like you're run of the mill or you're throwing soap opera. You're throwing so much that you might as well include the kitchen sink in yeah. it. I think that's kind of what that phrase means to oh, me. I always thought it was domestic Domestic based. Oh. <laughs> That's why I have, oh. maybe I have all wrong. <laughs> to me, I, I I always thought it was like you're throwing every outlandish kind of trouble or tension into these people's lives that you might as well throw in the kitchen sink. Like that, every, that everything would be but, more like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Yeah, right. Like <laughs> to me, uh, when I hear that, I just think I immediately have a negative connotation. I think of this movie much not as a kitchen sink drama because this is a very real. Mm-hmm. These are real issues mm-hmm. with real people, and they're relatable. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, unless you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth. Like, who hasn't suffered financial issues? And um, who hasn't suffered loss of love? Who, you know... Who, who, who hasn't had a first love in their r- lifetime? Right, yeah. That's why it's universal and why the language issue, it, you transcends language. Yeah. Right, right. And like I said, I mean, th- this movie, like, it, it, there's a lot going on in the plot, but to follow the, the basic plot points, you could easily watch this movie without the subtitles. Yeah. I mean... That it, it's conveyed so well visually that you could follow along what's going what's going on. Um, the facial the facial acting alone, um, the looks the characters give each other convey such emotion that you don't. Catherine need... Deneuve does a fantastic job. But I want to she's, she's so wanted... beautifully understated in everything she does. Go ahead. Sorry. I just wanted a name drop because when she's being expressive and emotional in in so many of her scenes she's fantastic in communicating that emotion it is it's it's it really is amazing she doesn't have to do anything either it's no. just you know you know what she's feeling she's so good she reminds me eric of a young sissy spacek i don't know what you would say about that but seriously that same type of really natural acting without acting 
basically. Okay, Sissy Spacek was a great actress. Mm-hmm. Well, I was is gonna, a great actress. Um, <laughs> I've uh, um, I would say she reminds me of also a young Jodie Foster. I think Jodie Foster's acting is very very natural. I guess the mo- the earliest role that people are most familiar with is of course Taxi Driver. But I was I recently watched a movie. I showed. Eric, that we're, I mean, I'm showed Andrew that we're going to be covering on the show a movie called Carney, where she plays a girl who, jo- who runs off and joins the carnival. I mean, I think she's 17 in the movie. She was probably 17 at the time, but her acting is just so natural. And I mean, Catherine Deneuve is probably what 18 when she did this movie. Yeah. She Young. was a little older. I think she might have been like her, 20 playing 18. 20 playing, which she could easily pull off. Sure. And I think the next movie she did after this, talk about going from... Uh, one extreme to the other. Right. One genre extreme to the other. She did... Um, Repulsion, Repulsion by Ro- Roman Polanski. Have you seen that, Eric? What, I, I thought, when did she do Belle du Jour? That was later. Okay. I don't know how no, much later, but it was, it was a little bit later. I, I think, think it was like 67 or even 69. Is she a prostitute? Uh, she's a bored housewife that turns tricks for kicks. <laughs> <laughs> so that's you want to talk about opposite roles. Yeah, well, I was going to say you should see Repulsion because she ends up. I mean, I'm giving away the ending. Do you want me to give away the ending or not? I'd rather you didn't. Okay, all right. Let's it's, not, but, it's, but I mean, she she it's a it's a psychological thriller basically. But I'm pretty but so I'm pretty sure that was musical to a psychological thriller. And I think okay. Repulsion is sixty five, if I'm remembering it's off the, the next, top of my it's head. The next flick. So I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, I'm sure it put her right on the map. Right, big time. And Roman Polanski's a great director, in spite of what he might have done. I love his movies. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's something that we uh, we judge the art, not the artist, here on the on the okay. uh, on the show. Um, yeah, we, we there's no reason for us. There's plenty. If you want to get into the speculation of what people are doing behind the scenes, there's plenty of podcasts. We're here just we're here to talk about. I mean, just amazing it, 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 art. This, I mean, some people don't say. I like to digni- uh, separate movies from cinema. I think there's a movie, there's flicks, and then there's like cinema, which I consider like art. Yeah, well this movie that we're talking about oh, today absolutely. is definitely cinema. Something art. something that you could you could pause the movie, take a, a a still shot and you could hang it up in a museum. Yeah. That's how beautiful. I mean, and again, that just speaks to again, I just wanted to I um we got we were lost in conversation, but you were talking about someone like uh, Pedro Aldemar. Almodovar. Almodovar. Um, I mean, to the exact, I mean, a different extreme, but I mean, just if you want to talk about amazing colors and visuals, something like Dario Argento when he was doing Italian giallo films. I mean, we're talking gruesome, gruesome subject matter, but beautiful colors, Mm -hmm. just like, I mean, it's well in lighting, Suspiria especially, right. which is mostly at night. Yeah, but I mean, the reds are red. I well, mean, uh, well, the blood. Yeah, the blood. Let's yeah. not get into the blood red. No, Dario, Dario well, just, Dario but I'm also thinking of something like um, the beautiful colors of a Jodorowsky film. Sure. Um, just the just the the I just love seeing these different kind of artistic sensibilities that come from different different artists from different genres mm-hmm. um and something like umbrellas of Cherbourg, I it's amazing to me that you you saw it through like a vaseline pasted 
<laughs> it was weird. It was like seeing a, a daydream or something when I saw that on my video cassette, you know, so. back in the 80s. Yeah. Oh, and, I, so. and, it's, and I have to say, it really surprises me to this day that there was an English translation of the soundtrack that, that was used for this version that I saw on TV. Yeah. There's, um, I mean, I, I think also, I maybe it's just me. I, I, I mean, wonder if the English translation, how that matches up with the subtitles, to tell you the truth. I wonder. Go I, ahead. I, I was just going to say, it's interesting to me that, um, and I'm, I'm curious to hear your two uh, gentlemen's thoughts on this. There's something that hits differently listening to a foreign musical than watching a foreign spoke word with just spoken dialogue that something there's less loss in translation when it's just spoken than when you're having lyrical dialogue with emotions kind of heightened well, you emotions. Know, I don't think I don't think I appreciated how much I did lose until I was able recently to tune out the subtitles and really tune in the singing and the music because uh, it actually until very recently, I don't think I realized how beautiful the singing voices are, how spectacular the singing actually is. Yeah. It's very, very good. Yeah, They're it's all, lovely. I mean, I mean, and just and simplistic in a in a in a complimentary way uh, to the to the material itself. Now, to 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 further what you're saying, Chris, like in something like a Harold Harold Pinter play or a movie adaptation of a Harold Pinter play. You can say something like, please pass the salt and have a lot of subtext going on. That's up to the actors to convey without music. But in this film, you have the added musicalization of the subtext going on. So even if they're saying, please pass the salt, it might be to the melody of, uh, you know, I will wait for you. And so there's already a musical subtext going on with that simple little line. Yeah, there was just something to me like it was easy. It's easier for me to process or to digest uh, spoken dialogue that I'm not familiar with the native language, but when it's sung to me, like that's that's why this is a movie that I'm gonna have to go back and, and revisit and um, yeah and watch without the subtitles because I think I I'm gonna I'm gonna call myself out on here. I'm getting too hung up on that. Yeah, <laughs> what I'm missing out on is like uh, that. I really need to just let this movie. Be. Don't be don't be so hard on yourself. The fact that you're not appreciating every aspect of it goes to show how many aspects are spectacular and great and important and beautiful and artistic and marvelous. Exactly right. Well, thank you. I um, mean, you can love that. You can love the story because it's universal and it speaks to you, and you cry because their emotions and their faces are so poignant. And not even not even notice how beautiful the singing is, and how lyrical, and how much rhyming there is happening. Because you're you're not able to listen to the words because you're busy reading the subtitles. There's so much happening in this movie that's so spectacular that you almost you can't go wrong. No, no, and it, it's it's something that we 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 see here a lot in the show is that this this movie easily warrants repeat viewings. How many times have you seen it, Eric? An estimate. Oh, I've I've lost count. I, I, I've <laughs> lost count. I mean, I, I, I certainly at least half a dozen, at least. Okay, same with me. I want to say around ten times, maybe throughout my life. I I don't know. I don't know. I also want to just note real quick that that final scene. Eric and I have a mutual friend who watched this movie just because we're doing this podcast, uh, and he was not impressed with the movie. He thought it was very slow and. 
and too straightforward until it's not slow. until <laughs> until we, Eric and I will have to talk about this with our mutual friend um, until the last scene. He said the last scene is really the the kicker, the the payoff. It's all and he he used the word iconic with that last scene with them at the gas station, uh, and it is and it reminds me. <laughs> and I thought this when the song came out. Hart has a song called All I Want to Do Is Make Love to You. It's not like their other music, but it was one of their biggest hits. It was like a big main... It, it was their attempt at a big mainstream hit, and it, it achieved that sad status. But this, but the story of that song, and in the video of that song, too, it's very similar to Umbrellas yes. of Sherberg. You know it, what I'm talking it's about. about. Yes, of course. It's about longing. It's about love lost. It's yeah. about looking back on on the past and having mournfully, a regretfully and having a child come from that moment when these two people came together and could never be together and having to come to terms with where you're at in the present yeah oh wow. boy that's okay. hard boy you know i'm dealing with that right now yeah um it's I, universal it is it universal is. It, and it, yeah you guys put it so well i mean that's that's why this movie, and Eric, I think you really hit the nail on the head. This movie transcends language. Yep. And and that's but the, not... But the French is very integral of to it. It at is. At the same time. But it's a beautiful aspect of it. Yeah. It is. Um, and, but I'm just, I'm just saying that it does, I mean, some movies are like too language-based that, you know, it's based, it's too localized or too, like, well, but I don't think that was accidental either. I think that it's coming of his from his culture. It's of the French culture, but he wanted to do a movie that was universal in the same way that great operas or Shakespearean drama is universal. Shakespeare wrote in the English language of Elizabethan England, but they're universal and they're translated and they're understood and they're appreciated all around the world because the themes are universal. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Very, very well put. Yes. So this movie uh, was, of course, uh, filmed in France and it was released February 19th, 1964. And it grossed at the box office $7.6 which... For the time, is nothing to sneeze at. Well, do you know how much it costs? I don't. I wasn't okay. able to get a budget okay. from it. But... I know that it won the Palm d'Or at uh, the 1964 Cannes Film Festival. Right. So that's that's a good start for a film. Uh, five, it was nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Foreign Language Film, Best Original Screenplay, Best Original Co Score. So, yeah, lots of accolades that have... Um... Even in its day. Yeah. Right. So, um, as we start wrapping up this, I do want to pose the question to both of you: um, Why do you think this qualifies as? And again, um, cult is such a loose term, but why would you say that this qualifies as a cult uh, a cult classic, Eric? I actually had difficulty with that myself, and I wasn't sure if it did constitute cult classic it's not a cult quote-unquote cult movie like some of the other movies you review on your podcast it's not quirky in that same way i i feel like it's more artistic mm -hmm. yeah I, I mean if anything i think it it can be defined as cult because it's not very well known because it's a bit underground and it was rather innovative for its time yes. it was groundbreaking for its time. You know, when uh, Eric, Eric, when you and I were discussing this movie, 
I knew that we were going to do a month of musicals for the podcast, and I was trying to think of one, and I had entertained the thought of Umbrellas of Cherbourg, and you mentioned it without any provocation on my really? end. And that, that's when I knew that we had to do it and that you had to guest on it. And I did subsequently go online. I did, I did a Google search of Umbrellas of Cherbourg cult, and there, there were articles talking about it being uh, a cult movie. So that it has a cult following, and it does have a cult following. These days, a lot of movies have a cult following, so the definition of a cult movie is different now than what it would have been several decades ago, or even a decade ago, because of the internet and because of the immediacy of films. Uh, There are so many more films that have established a, quote, cult following, unquote. I, and I, I I have a couple I just go to phrases when someone asks me something like this. Well, I, I, our little tagline is we're the home of movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. This qualifies. So I, I was going to say that yeah. hits all those bullet points. Sure does. And I also like to say that I think a a cult movie can come from any director, from any time period, from any movie company, from any genre of movie. It's something that I would say has lived on well past its uh, what maybe people would think is its, its expiration date or its shelf yeah, life. Yeah. It's and it's it has like invited a t- and it has invited a reevaluation over the years. Exactly. And it still has an audience and it's still talked to to this day and it's one of those movies that like you said if someone's thinking, "Oh my god, I want to do kind of like a an obscure cult musical." This is the kind of thing that would get thrown in their yeah. their way yeah and um, another thing that it, it qualify I mean this is a cheat but I mean if it's released by Criterion <laughs> there's a good chance that the, it's got the, a yeah. cult following there's got a cult <laughs> following and not only that it's also and what I like to do with this show is that I I don't want people because one of the things that I saw when I when I started this was that there's so many cult podcasts that focus on the so bad it's good kind of movies. Right. The real schlock. Right. And that's to me that's low hanging fruit. That's too easy. That's why <laughs> that's, I like doing that's traditional cult movies. Yeah. yeah. And then you have something like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I would right. say has eclipsed cult status. Like, oh yeah. It started out as a cult movie and now it's so much I'm, in the mainstream. I mean Rocky Horror was a flop when it first came out despite its uh success as a stage production. Uh it, fl- it actually flopped um in the movies, in the box office, and on Broadway in 1975, they brought it to Broadway. It flopped on Broadway too. <laughs> but I mean, how much how much money has that movie made? Oh, now? now? Oh, god. Yeah. I mean, yeah, enough to enough to merit a remake. They did remake it. I mean, it it's not. still they has, still have midnight screenings to this day. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, so come on, it's mm-hmm. it's one of those things mm-hmm. raking um, it in. So, like, this, this is kind of, like, why I, like, we're kind of, like, the, not the art house or snooty cult podcast. Because we do, like, we like to dip our toes into muddy waters every once in a while. We, but... Well, I think we do it every episode. <laughs> <laughs> but but something like this is definitely, um, yeah, this is this is a different kind of cult movie, yeah. which which I, I, I love. And um, yeah. I before we start Final Thoughts, I just want to thank Andrew and... Uh, Eric for bringing this movie to my attention because um, this I have to say as gen- and I said this at the at the long last love I'm usually typically not a fan of, uh, of musicals but something like this I mean it's not your, it's not your everyday musical no and that's what makes it so special 
It's so it's such an it's an experience this this movie really is. Yes. And, and it may see like I mean we've been talking well over an hour about this movie that you could I mean sometimes we have trouble summarizing our movies. I could easily bang out a paragraph sure. if I had to summarize the plot synopsis of this movie. Sure, but sure. there's so much I would be missing all the nuances and right. all the little things that make this movie um, Delightful. Yes, I'm thank al- you. I'm always bringing up Moulin Rouge, always, because it's always been one of my favorite movies. I think I saw it around 20 times when it was released in the movie theaters. So, yeah, right. I, there, there was one afternoon where I was in a multiplex, and I think it was playing in three different theaters, and I just went around and around for the whole day watching audience reactions. Anyway, when Baz Luhrmann approached Nicole Kidman about doing this movie, she was doing a play, uh, I think, in New York, and he sent her flowers backstage, and he put in the uh, in the card. He said, "I've got a role for you." She sings, she dances, she dies. And he, and that, like that's that summed it all up. And that's, she was like, "Okay, I'm down. I'm in. <laughs> but, Sign I mean, me up." The simplicity, once again, the simplicity of a love story, and they they make fun of it throughout the whole movie. It's like. What is this going to be about? It's going to be about love. 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 You know, but I mean, the, the if you're doing a love story, the more simplistic you make it, the more effective it's going to be because more it universal is universal. It is. Yes, Absolutely. Yes. And we all can connect to it if we allow ourselves. So yeah. I'm going to allow our guest here to have the first round of final thoughts. Final thoughts, Eric. Final thoughts. I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to share this movie with with anybody because I want everyone to know about it, and I can't wait to watch it again. Yeah, awesome. It's self care. Yes, <laughs> I love it. Movie. Cinema therapy. Yes, <laughs> cinematic therapy. I love it. So well put, Andrew. Uh, I have in my notes that I am drawn to the darkness beneath movie mu- that lurks beneath certain movie musicals. Um, and this one does qualify in that respect. I mean, there's a, there's a dark element to Umbrellas of Schoberg underneath all of its uh, joy and all of its um, beauty, you know. And uh, it's, the, it's that dark element that really, once again, grounds, grounds the film for me. And for me, I will simply say it was brought... I mean, we, you discussed a mutual friend of yours that didn't like the movie until the final scene. Right. I enjoy, thoroughly enjoyed this movie, and then my God, that final scene—just oh. everything about it. The like, there's something about just snow in a movie, and like that time period. It's Christmas. Yeah, it's Christmas. It's it's, Christmas, and it's heartbreak. Well, it's not heartbreak for them; it's heartbreak for us. No, it, yeah. it's just—I mean, like, talk about ending on a high point. Yeah. Like, even though it is a low point emotionally for the audience. It's a high point, a high point emotionally for these characters because they finally got that. They got closure. closure. They got closure. And again, I can't speak to how. The, it's yes, Eric. You've put it so eloquently well that this is a universal theme of love and of life. And I love the fact that. Is it the. Is it the most? It's not. It's not a Hollywood ending. It's such a real, realistic ending. Mm-hmm. It's it's satisfying mm-hmm. because these characters got closure. It's not too sappy that all of a sudden Guy and Gwen, Catherine Deneuve, realize that oh my god, like we need to get back together. Oh, can you imagine it, the damage that would create to the respective families? Oh, yeah. So it's like past the point of no return by yeah. then. So the success is that they've moved on. Yeah. yeah. 
Yep. Did you say the success? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, like that it. they've endured and they've moved on and they've let go. That oh. they're continuing with their lives, that we know right. they're going to be all right in spite of everything that's happened to them. I'm not going to be all right. <laughs> <laughs> you might not. But they'll be all right. <laughs> that's the, that's another story. So you've got you've got three guys here from varying different backgrounds telling you all that if you have not seen this movie, this this is one um, that I w- I would say that you just got to let it just let your mind go and just soak this movie in. Yeah. It's a treat. It's a treat visually. It's a treat audio, for the audio senses. You know, yep. it's just everything about it. Yeah. Have yeah. a glass of wine or have a bottle of wine when you, when and, you watch it. And keep it. the tissues handy. And keep just the in, tissues Unless handy. you have a heart of stone like me that I was just... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm too jaded. I was just like... Well, and in a way, like, I was doing it for you, sitting, you know, in the chair next to you. Like, I was always on the verge of breaking down. And I think I told you, like, if I break down, we might have to stop the movie for a while. I didn't, ha- I didn't have no, that breakdown. So, you did but, not, so... Yeah. But, I mean, you were aware golf, that I was going through golf that. Golf clap so, for you to making yeah, it through you, without Thank crying. you, But, I mean, my point is, like, you were, in a way, you were playing emotional chaperone to me. Emotional chaperone. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> We've coined some interesting phrases on the show. Cinematic therapy and emotional chaperone. So uh, cultural osmosis. Yes, cultural which, which, you can say this movie has a lot of cultural osmosis. Well, I mean, Eric... I mentioned yeah. two movies right off the bat that are highly influenced by this. And I just want to say, Eric brought up a very good point. There's a the, the scene at the train station when he's going off to war. Oh. How many times have we seen that mo- scene in movies? Oh, yeah. I mean, There's so. a scene like that in Tommy, actually, uh, with Anne Margaret. But this, real quick, real quick, let me mention, Eric and my mutual friend talk about the esoteric uh, symbols and themes in movies a lot. Um, and I do want to point out, just as a blanket statement for this movie, the colors are indicative of different uh, themes and different messages and different emotions. The train station scene, she's got a scarf that is light blue. Light blue does represent innocence, by the way. Uh, yeah, so that is important. Oh. And also, uh, he was talking about the uh, the sim- sim- symbol, the symbolic meanings of umbrellas uh, and how... How within, within the certain elitist... Uh, Worlds that the umbrellas kind of represent um, an an enclosure of knowledge, if that makes any sense, a kind of insulated environment where people are protected by their knowledge. So I I don't know if I'm conveying that very well, but just something else to think about. What I was going to say, sometimes you kind of think, you see certain movies, the upper class people have the umbrella, or somebody carrying an umbrella for them, sure. over them. Sure. And, and then the you've got the poor people which just have the newspaper That's over right. their head. And something our, like that. And our mutual friend noticed that in the opening sequence, the soldiers uh, did not have umbrellas. No, they did not. Yeah, which is interesting. So It's very interesting. There's, uh, I mean, the, the, so, the, the war aspect of this movie is a very a character of its own even though it seems very minor it's actually quite major right final final thing about esoteric esoteric images the scenes especially at the beginning between the mother and the daughter inside the shop and inside the apartment adjacent to the shop is filled with mirrors filled with mirror reflections talking to each other filled with uh mirrors in the background reflecting certain things it's all very strategic this is very esoteric movie making you see it in many many movies 
Um, I don't recall a, a mirror smashing at all, so that didn't happen, I don't think, in in umbrellas at all. But still, you've got no. the double. You've got the the mirrors represent a duality, and there sure. is a lot of duality going on in this movie. I, I think I'm thinking that the last time we saw we saw a mirror, I think at Long Last Love. At Long broke. Last Love, yeah, a movie musical broke, where they, he breaks the mirror. Yeah, yeah, I don't recall a mirror being broken in this movie. Which um, yeah, which often uh, which which is indicative of of trauma. Of trauma and the mind kind of shattering through extreme trauma. Right. There's no reason for it to pop up in a Cole Porter musical, but anyway. So that's it. Eric, were you were you gonna say something? I don't know if I need to say anything else. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say we've talked an hour and a half about this movie, okay. so that's let's wrap it up. Um, I mean, if you if you're not convinced by now, we're not gonna be able to come up with anything else to convince you. So. I just want to thank uh, my my co-host as usual, Andrew and Eric. Thank you. I can't thank you enough. Yeah, you, you brought are a... you, you brought so much to this episode. Yep. So big time. Thank you so much for inviting me. Round of applause on. for you, Eric. You're um, welcome. So thank you all for joining us on the Cult Film Companion podcast. We are, of course, available on all major streaming podcast platforms. You can get all the links for that through our podcast uh, podcast website on Acast, uh, Twitter at Cult Film Comp, C-U-L-T-F-I-L-M-C-O-M-P. That's also our Instagram handle. Join the Facebook group. Send us emails. Send us tweets. Tell us what you like. Give us recommendations for movies. All that good stuff. For Andrew, for Eric, my name is Chris, and thank you once again, and we bid you uh, adieu. Is that French? It I is. Maybe. Right? Is it? Adieu. 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 Au revoir. Au revoir. There we go. <laughs> Au revoir.